Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Zoe. Hey, everybody. On today's show, we're going to be discussing uh, women's professional sports. This is a an area that has been uh, rapidly growing in recent years with new leagues popping up, new television deals being signed, uh, pretty significant growth in women's sports internationally. And the jumping off point for our discussion today is going to be about the uh, formation of a new women's hockey league, the PWHL, which is going to start play in January. Zoe, you know more about this than me. What's going on here? What? Why is this a big deal? So <clears throat> what happened this past summer was that there was an existing women's professional hockey league in North America that had rebranded itself as the premier hockey federation they used to be known as the national women's hockey league and they were actually bought out by kind of a competing investor group after four years of many players refusing to play in that league due to concerns over professional standards so they formed kind of their own barnstorming organization called the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association, or PWHPA, after another women's league had folded, which was kind of running in parallel to the PHF. Uh, it was called the Canadian Women's Hockey League, and that had been, I believe, in existence since 2007. That sounds right to me. So the CWHL folded the PHF was the last league standing and a lot of players were refusing to play in that league because of concerns about labor conditions, concerns about pay and just professional standards in general. The PHF was not unionized. The new PWHL, the investor group bought out the PHF so that they could basically start with a clean slate with no competing league. And they, at the same time that they bought out the PHF, they were also negotiating a collective bargaining agreement uh, with that player group. So that CBA was ratified. It's a 10-year CBA, I think. And it is going to be in place before the league even begins play. And players are already, because training camps have just started last week, uh, players are already being paid under this new CBA and the conditions that they've negotiated. You know, that's kind of the the play-by-play from a like anal- analysis perspective. There's been a lot of debate about like what the CBA has actually done for the sport, whether, you know, it was the right thing to do, what's happened, uh, eliminating an entire league. It's reduced the number of roster spots available in North America considerably. But on the flip side of that, like many of the best players in the world, like the national team players, the, you know, high caliber NCAA players, and many players are also joining from the European leagues as well. They're going to get higher salaries and better working standards, facilities, equipment, reimbursement for things like media appearances and stuff like that. They're going to get in what in my view is probably the best pot of resources that they've ever had before and it's completely new it's very different it's never been done this way before and none of the other women's professional leagues have begun quite this way before so it's a it's a fraught time but it's also very exciting something that we've talked about before when discussing women's sports is sort of the tension that a lot of the athletes feel between you know, wanting, you know, obviously the best deal for themselves, but also feeling pressure or a need or their own desire to also grow the game, to be responsible for helping future women athletes, you know, follow in their footsteps, helping to 
create something that can actually last because, you know, this will not be news to our listeners, but like the resources available for women's sports are so much more limited compared to the resources available for men's sports. It's not a given that any of these leagues will still be around in X number of years. And so this is a dynamic that keeps coming up whenever a new league is launched or, you know, a new sport gains prominence. It's, um, yeah. And I think the, the genesis of this is really kind of in reaction to that. And, you know, the way that people kind of talked about women's hockey before, and I've also seen this repeated, particularly in soccer, I'm not quite as tapped into, you know, what the the basketball culture is like, but it's very much like, you know, we, we're doing this for the love of the game. We're doing this to grow the game. And it also it kind of takes on a tone of conscription almost. Like if I don't play, I'm doing a disservice to the league. I'm doing a disservice to the sport and I'm doing a disservice to all of the young people coming up who look up to me. And I think, you know, the, the PWHPA and their journey into becoming the PWHL was kind of a reaction to that. Like, you know, we've been doing this for so long. We've been doing this for decades. Like it's been going on for 30 years, over 30 years. The very first, you know, IIHF Women's World Championship was played in 1990. And that's like the, the top level international ice hockey competition in the world for, for women. And, you know, 30 years of playing just for the love of the game doesn't really get the job done. You know, it doesn't create that, that viable professional league that has high standards that fans are like really excited to go out to see. Like you get the, the diehards, the people who are obsessed with it, but you don't get, you know, a lot of exposure. So I think the goal with creating this new league was to make it so that, you know, we are inspiring the next generation and we're working hard, but we're also like getting what we deserve. We can do both. You know, the men's sports get to do both, right? So why can't we do both? I wanted to drill a little bit on, you you talked about this being a a fraught time, right? And Mm -hmm. I wanted to sort of talk more about what were the what were the conditions that made it possible for something that like I know you know leagues folded and so on but as you pointed out the PWHL is I think you said off air probably the first professional league in at least North America to begin play with a CBA already negotiated mm-hmm. we've We've had punching out episodes talking about the emergence of sports unions and other leagues. That's never happened in any of the big men's leagues. What sort of allowed for that to happen? But then also, I noticed you mentioned that this is a 10-year CBA, and I know that the NWSL signed something like a four-, five-year CBA. So I'm also wondering... What factors do you think end up animating sort of setting working conditions that far in advance? Well, I do know that the term of the CBA was a compromise. Let me let me actually confirm the length of the CBA while I'm drilling into this. Um, but I think the reason why they were able to negotiate a CBA before beginning play was because they'd already had their kind of collective structure in place. Like I said, they formed the PWHPA. They did several seasons of like barnstorming tours where they were going to cities all over the United States and Canada and playing hockey, like kind of an exhibition style. It wasn't an official league. Um, People were getting paid to participate in that, but it wasn't like an actual league structure. It wasn't considered like, you know, this is your team and you're contracted to this team and this team competes against other teams. It was more like whoever's available that weekend, whoever's available that week, we'll put you all on a team together and see what happens. But it was intended to like really showcase what the sport at a high level looked like and really draw attention to the individual athletes. Um, So they already had this kind of group in place that was already kind of functioning as a unit. 
Um, and obviously you did have people join and leave. Like some of the people who were in the PWHPA went back to the PHF. Some of them went to play overseas. There was some flux in the group, but really like kind of the, there, there was a strong core primarily of the U.S. and Canadian women's national teams who were in that group. So I think that strategy made that possible. And yeah, I, I'm... I'm completely wrong. It's not a 10 year CBA. It's like a, like an eight year CBA. It's nevertheless, that's still a pretty long CBA. And we've seen some shorter ones in women's sports recently. I, the term of the CBA was a compromise. The ownership group had wanted a longer one and the players had wanted a shorter one. And that was their, their meet in the middle number to get the deal done. And, you know, there have been some concerns about that obviously. And I think they're well-founded concerns because let's say this really takes off and becomes super profitable. It really like, and this has been brought up by other journalists and I think by the players as well, though, maybe not on the record, like it does keep the salary structure quite flat. That said, I think it does give the ownership group flexibility to like reinvest in, in the league to a certain degree, like if they're seeing that it is turning a profit, you know, they can, you know, look at what they can actually do with those profits. They can look at expansion because that's been a big concern that the number of roster spots has been significantly reduced in North America for pro pro league play. And I know they'll definitely want to look at expansion if it does really take off. And I do think that if it does really take off, then that's, great leverage for the players to negotiate different salaries in the next deal, which will be in 2031. So. Zoe, you, you mentioned that this league is going to have a lot of the top European players. Um, I, I think we'll get into some of this more in the next segment, but like in soccer and basketball, it's often more lucrative for women athletes to go abroad to play in the European professional leagues, whether that's in Russia and basketball, especially, or just in the major soccer countries in Europe. Uh, But like what sort of opportunities are available? Like, is there a European equivalent to that in hockey? Do you know? Yeah, there are several European leagues. Um, I would say probably the highest level one is the Swedish top tier league, which is the SDHL. And most of those teams are kind of like counterparts, like they're operated in conjunction with a men's team. So they'll like play in the same arena and more or less get pretty good resources, you know, when compared to their men's leagues. I don't know what the salaries are like, and it's kind of different to do. You can't really do a one-to-one comparison with that because in Europe, they have so many other public services. It is very difficult for north americans to get work visas in those countries so they're what the sdhl does um that a lot of players have talked about is that they really can't provide salary but they will provide like housing free of cost to the player and you know meals and stuff like that because they really can't legally pay them potentially depending on what the the laws are in that country, but in Sweden, at least they can provide them with like housing and other stuff, just maybe not salary because they can't sponsor their immigration to Sweden uh, with the resources that they have. There's also a Finnish league called Nystan Liga, which is growing. There's a Swiss league, which, you know, is having some problems. I do know that the top Swiss player has been drafted and will play in the PWHL this season, Alina Mueller. She's one of the best players, period, but probably the best Swiss forward of all time. And she's going to be playing in Boston in the PWHL this year. Uh, She went to Northeastern University. Um, There's also the European Women's Hockey League, which has teams kind of throughout Europe. And I believe there's also an Italian league. If if not an Italian league, then there are definitely Italian teams in the EWHL. I do think, I don't, know what type of salary they're offering to domestic players but i do not think it offers the same level of competition that you'll see in north america 
So the draw of playing in North America, whether it's in a pro league or whether it's in the NCAA Division One, is really so that you're playing against the best talent in the world. Because America, Team USA and Team Canada are ranked number one, number two in the world. So when you're playing against American and Canadian top tier players, you're playing, you know, best on best. So that's what I think the draw is. So hockey is very popular in Europe, just maybe not in the same way because of how they economically treat women's sports. But it's not like there is also a Russian league, the Zhenskaya uh, Hockey League. And, you know, they're kind of more in the model of those, you know, Russian basketball teams that we talk about where they're probably basically just doing money laundering for oil companies, but they can, <laughs> they can pay these like very extravagant salaries uh, tax-free to high, high level athletes because of the way that Russian laws work around athlete pay. So I think you can make some pretty decent money playing hockey in Russia, but that would require going to Russia or China. They do have a, a few teams in China and in other like Eurasian countries. So that's kind of a, a cliff's note of European women's hockey. There's also a league in Japan and there's also a league in China. So what we're, what we're discovering here is Russian oligarchs, male allies <laughs> after all that. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're putting, putting their money where their mouth is. But um, yeah, I, the draw is really to play best on best in the U.S. and Canada. Like that's, that's really what the, the selling point is, is that you're getting the best players in the world all together in one place. They, the PWHL wants to be a destination league. And they have attracted many great players already from, from those countries. What sort of pay are we looking at for the PWHL? Like, have those details come out from the CBA? So the salaries are not going to be disclosed, um, but you can kind of guess what they are, if that makes sense. Um, they're operating under a salary average, which is something else I really haven't seen before in sports. So it kind of took, took me some time and some napkin math to get my head around it. So the minimum salary is $35,000. The Each team is mandated to sign six players to three-year contracts of $80,000 a year or more. And the mandatory average per team is $55,000. So it really all depends on how high those top contracts go. But I think the majority of the players are probably going to be making, you know, in the forty dollars to $60,000 range annually. And it does receive increases every year in the CBA. And those are, those are set in stone. Um, and there's also a housing stipend. I think it's like $1,500 a month towards housing. And there's also like mandated meals during the season and during training and there's also um additional payments for media appearances and stuff like that and also performance bonuses like you get a certain bonus if your team is in the playoffs if they win the championship and if you win like an individual accolade you get additional bonuses yeah we know in particular the playoff bonuses i know is is a big part of nhl culture as well i know that that was a, a big contention in one of the cba fights may have even been the one where they certain they almost decertified the union so they could file an antitrust complaint yeah and then talking about the housing so the the what this strikes me as and what might be a useful comparison model you talked about sort of the european women's leagues being impossible to compare one-to-one -one because of the structure of sports over there. That's something that we've talked about in reference to things like how we couple sports and education over here versus the academy model and whatnot. But based on those numbers, this is like what minor league men's hockey is right now, basically. Yeah. And um, I've been, I talked to player agents for a piece um, that I wrote recently and you know, the real comparable is like kind of the AHL or the ECHL because they're making those types of salaries and kind of getting similar benefits. So I haven't actually been able to read their CBAs. I reached out to their union and they did not provide me with their CBAs. I didn't hear back from them. But based on what we know, 
about what those CBAs look like and what the compensation looks like. It is very similar to men's minor hockey, which is great because we didn't, it wasn't even close to that before in, in my view. Basically, I think what they're trying to do and what I think so far they're, they've been relatively successful at doing is laying a foundation that is really strong for what the player's baseline is, but also like expecting to grow, not just kind of waiting around to see what happens and hoping someone throws money at you. Like they've gotten the guy who owns the Los Angeles Dodgers just to throw a lot of money at them. They, they've convinced them through demonstrating the product and demonstrating the type of athlete that you're going to be employing and what high level women's hockey actually looks like. And I think that getting investors on board who expect this to be a high end experience from day one is a real game changer because while we've had investors before, we haven't, I think we haven't had people who expect that they're going to have to throw a lot of money at it to get the results that they want. So what you're describing with the, some of those salary details where only a few players on each team are going to be making pretty healthy salaries. while maybe the average is significantly lower than that reminds me of not just women's soccer in the U S but men's soccer in the U S where rules are often geared towards allowing teams to sign a few star players for really lucrative salaries while the minimum and the league average is much more middle class, if anything. Mm-hmm. It's So it's interesting just to have that. Yeah. Soccer, I would say, is probably the best comparable to this situation, though obviously soccer, I think, is much more international even than hockey. Like hockey is a very international sport. Like that's kind of one of the reasons why I got invested in it when I was younger was because it was like, it felt very global. It felt like, you know, there are people from all over the world coming together to play the sport and soccer is like that even more so. You have a lot of like international transfer situations. You have many high-end women's leagues, like kind of throughout the world, even if they're not being paid as well necessarily, but What the NWSL is trying to do, I think, right now is to make themselves that destination league, whereas right now it's probably the the women's league in the UK that's that destination league that has, like, the highest end players, the best coaches. As you may have heard, the United States women's national team just hired away the Chelsea women's team coach, who is considered one of the best coaches ever in women's soccer. And I think that type of investment is something that the NWSL is realizing that they really have to do too. Like, you know, we can't just kind of scrap around and hope someone notices that we're good. We have to really, really invest in our staff and invest in our people, especially after the uh, the sexual abuse scandal that they had recently as well, which is another reason why I think unionization in women's sports is so important because I really think that that, the issues that were part of that scandal and part of that those horrible things that happened to those players were really only able to come to light because the players were kind of acting collectively and protecting each other and having each other's backs and being like, you know, it's okay for you to talk about this because we're going to ensure that your voices are heard and that it's not buried. So I don't know of any... and. Obviously, the NHL had several sexual abuse scandals come out recently as well. And just in men's hockey in general, there have been sexual abuse scandals for years. But in, in I don't know of that happening in women's hockey specifically, but I do know that having the players officially represented by a union will make the process a lot easier if someone has to you know, come forward about misconduct or something that happened to them that wasn't right. And we've never had that before in women's hockey. It is. It, it's particularly interesting to talk about uh, sort of the, the the relationship between the leagues and their players, and then also the strategy that you're mentioning. We spend so much time on this show talking about companies whose explicit business model is 
let's wait around until some VC person buys us out or throws a bunch of money at us or some, what is a private equity firm, you know, loads us up with debt, gives us golden parachutes. And then the, the idea that there's any business in the United States that is actively investing in itself to try and create a good product to put on the field is in 2023, a huge surprise. I think the only part that that isn't is that it's in sports because it's like the one thing you can't really fake. You know, we do say ball don't lie. And I guess that's also true for puck. <laughs> but it, it really, it's almost shocking to hear of a an entity saying we're actually going to put money into making this better. Not that glitzier, certainly. Like I've seen some of the graphics out of the NWSL and, and PWHL. But, but actually have credibility for this product. That's actually kind of amazing. Yeah. And I think, and there are different schools of thought on this. I know a lot of people disagree with my takes on how well the PHF was doing, but based on, you know, the reporting that I did, my, uh, my staff talked to players who played in that league or who left that league, they really in my view, often tried to hide the conditions that the players were working in with, you know, these press flashy press releases and constantly raising their salary cap without us having any way of knowing how much of it they were actually spending. And because they didn't have salary transparency, they there was no mechanism for knowing what salaries were actually were. And only because a few players disclosed did we have any idea kind of what the baseline was they did allow players to voluntarily disclose i think salary disclosure is going to be a huge thing that needs to happen in this league even if we kind of understand the mathematical limitations of the average i really think we do need to have salary transparency so that people actually know like what what people are taking home and to ensure that like the wider public knows that these players aren't being exploited. Obviously, like in men's hockey, I think I don't know what the minimum NHL salary is now. I think it's under a million dollars, but still like six figures is six figures. Like, you know, you can take care of your family on that, even if your playing time is somewhat limited. Um, and that's something you hear about in women's sports all the time is like they're acutely aware of their playing time being limited because all of these professional women's athletes have come up in an environment where their playing time was never guaranteed. Like they might play in college and that might be it. So they're acutely aware of like the, the limitations of their professional careers. You know, you have people still playing in the WNBA who probably grew up as little kids, never even thinking that that was a possibility. Like I remember the WNBA launching when I was a small child. And that was like, just mind blowing to me, like, wow. And I played basketball as a little kid, believe it or not. And it was like, if I were really good at this, maybe I could like make a life out of it. And obviously that's not what happened because I was like eight years old and I couldn't shoot a basket to save my life. But like, you know, you, it, uh, this entire crop of women's athletes has grown up without this being a possibility in their careers. And they they know that they're going to need to make as much money as possible like during their playing careers in order to secure their futures and their families' futures. And that's harder for them than it is for men's athletes simply because the numbers aren't as big. Yeah. I think we should take a break here about the halfway point of the episode. And in our second segment, I'd like to do a bit of like comparing and contrasting between the PWHL and what we see in the WNBA and the NWSL as far as, you know, what models those sports use and how they differ and for better and for worse. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.
Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Zoe. Hello, everybody. And Noah. Still hi, y'all. In our first segment today, we talked a lot about the fledgling PWHL, a new women's hockey league that is um, rising out of the ashes of the old women's hockey league in the U.S. and Canada. And more broadly, we've been talking about how difficult it has been for women athletes to find stable leagues and successful working conditions in the U.S. historically. And that is changing somewhat in recent years, but still there is a lot of progress to be made. In this segment, I I really wanted to sort of contrast the PWHL's model with what we've seen in the WNBA and the NWSL, the professional leagues for basketball and uh, soccer in this country, where, you know, because those leagues have more years under their feet, you know, they are a little more established now and we have an idea of what works and what hasn't uh, to some extent. So like the NWSL is now in, I think it's 11th or 12th year. Uh, It's 11th season just wrapped up and, Soccer, as we mentioned in the first segment, it's a very international game. There are a lot of opportunities for players to go to Europe. But also something that's been the case is like because of Title IX, the U.S. just has invested more in women's sports development than a lot of European countries. And those countries and those like professional clubs are playing catch up in a lot of real ways, but they are quickly catching up. We saw at the past world cup that the U S went out in the quarterfinals. Uh, we've seen where you mentioned the women's soccer league in the UK is on par with, if not better in terms of quality than the NWSL. And that puts it in a unique circumstance where it hadn't been before. It had just been sort of coasting on the U S invest in women's sports and there hadn't been, this level of competition, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's true. Mostly because of the NCAA Division One, which is just a cash behemoth. Like, o- only in the United States could we figure out how to make so much money off of, like, college-aged student-athletes, quote-unquote. Like, another country would not have allowed this to happen just because of various like ethics standards and laws that I'm sure they have in place, particularly in Europe around labor. Like it just never would have happened, but we've grown that what has turned into not only a lucrative infrastructure for, for women's sports in some ways, but also like what are effectively some of the best developmental leagues in the world. In, in women's hockey, I know that's definitely true. I know that, uh, Women's college soccer is also considered a very strong level of competition. And women's basketball is in NCAA is crazy good. That's like one of the biggest draws that you'll find in the entire uh, sport of basketball is, you know, women's March Madness. So I, I, and obviously, you know, everyone's always trying to find exceptions to title nine, like some of the best programs in the country have, at various times been unceremoniously cut because they're trying to figure out how to move more money around. But we do have a great kind of women's sports infrastructure, especially at the developmental level for like youth and college. Whether the reasons for that are good or not, I guess there is up for debate. I'd probably say it's, sometimes it's not good, but yeah, we, we do a lot of women's sports in the United States and in Canada to a certain extent more so than uh, than other countries do in many ways. And at the same time as that's been the case, there is still a situation where, you know, maybe the WNBA is the most stable place for women's basketball. But if you are a big star, you can get paid significantly more money by playing in Europe, by playing in countries like Russia and Turkey. This is something that, You know, if you are less familiar with women's basketball, you may have been made aware of when uh, Brittany Griner was arrested in Russia. 
it has been the case that like for a lot of American players, a lot of players who came up and went to college in the U.S., they've had to go abroad for the best payday. And that's something that the WNBA as a league has been trying to cramp down on. And the most mm-hmm. recent CBA, they've put into place what's called a prioritization clause where they really expect players to only be playing in the WNBA and not in other leagues during the off season. Not necessarily. It just, I think it heavily restricts them in terms of like what contracts they might sign to play overseas. And I think the overseas leagues are probably going to have to adjust for it, but it basically means that like, if a player doesn't make training camp, I think starting in 2024, then they'll be suspended for the whole season. And they're kind of like easing it in to give people some time to figure it out. But, you know, they're basically saying, feel free to go over to Europe if you want, but you have to be back for training camp if you expect to play here. I don't know, like in, in women's hockey, you often see like contracts being signed that have certain clauses about release to play elsewhere and like whether you're allowed release. So it might be like that they get different types of contracts where they're say only joining the team for a set amount of time and then they're leaving to go to training camp. You might see that happen or you might see, I think players really coming up in the sport who might only see the WNBA as like part of their goal. You might see them exclusively playing in the WNBA, especially as the salaries continue to go up. And also as the global, like, you know, geopolitical situation gets worse, you may see people less interested in traveling overall. So they've kind of maybe accidentally timed it quite well. But I think, you know, any American league or Canadian league, any North American league wants to be seen as like the best place to play because that's kind of a huge source of pride, I think, for American business people is that they want to be the thing. And I think European business sensibilities aren't quite the same way. There's an ESPN article from 2022 that goes into a bit about not just the prioritization clause, but also, you know, the reasons why it's more lucrative overseas. You know, the WNBA is a league with a salary cap and it very much follows the American model of trying to promote uh, quote unquote competitive balance by keeping salaries within a certain range. And in Europe, not just in basketball, but in all sports, it's historically been kind of a free for all. Like if you have a billion dollars because you own an oil well in Russia, you're free to pump that money directly into your sports team and dominate whatever sports league they might play. And so like, WNBA players have specifically gone to Russia because that's where the money is. That's where people are splashing cash on sports as I, I guess partly a sports washing thing, but also just like here's the prestige and glamour of owning a successful sports franchise. Yeah, I think it, it's definitely a much different culture. You don't see as much of that in in hockey. Um, I think you do see a little bit of it sometimes, but Hockey's kind of like this humble, cold place kind of sport in a, in a lot of ways. Russian, you know, energy company and oil company money notwithstanding. And I think maybe there's a certain level of sexism or misogyny in that. Like, I think that the kind of glitz and glamour has very traditionally been like sort of a men's thing. But now that women athletes are really seen as these potential global superstars, and you already see that in the WNBA and in the NWSL, or just global basketball, global soccer, like they're very, very big names, considered like some of the most famous athletes in the entire world. And I think everyone's going to be trying to capitalize on that. Like everyone's going to try to capitalize on the profile of this, you know, and kind of portray it as like, you know, a win for for women, a win for feminism, you know, that we have these ultra rich, ultra famous athletes uh, representing their sport on a global level. 
so there's going to be there's going to be a push to get more players like that to promote more more people at that level and i think hockey is definitely going to become a part of that or they're hoping that they're going to be a part of that especially with the winter olympics in 2026 which i'm watching with interest to see to see how that's going to play out there's something you talked about in the last segment with the question of a player scoring the game too that i think operates at a very important level here when you have generations of players that then kind of hang around you know and they're promoted as stars during their playing career and they hang around as brand ambassadors or broadcast crews or coaches or what have you but if they continue to sort of participate in in widening the appeal of the sport that creates a sense of history that I think enables certainly that that fan. I mean, I'm coming at this as a baseball fan. That's what we all are. <laughs> We're all like trying to get our PhD in baseball over at it. But it, it's this idea of it creates something to pass on and creates the possibility for the casual fan. You don't have to be obsessed with it to kind of have some idea what the teams are and so on. You can just kind of pick it up as you're as you're getting it, and and that's certainly going to allow those leagues to hopefully expand not just in terms of teams, but in terms of reach and, and get the revenue that they need to be more self-sustaining, which speaking of, I, I know that's part of what we wanted to talk about in this segment, sort of that ideal of, of how do you get to the point that your league can sustain itself? I think that's a very interesting question. It's something that I've like sat with so much over the last almost 10 years that I've been, covering women's hockey because all of the big money in men's sports really comes from the broadcasting and the advertising and the sponsorships. It really doesn't come from, you know, the small line items like, you know, gate sales aren't considered a big line item in men's sports and in women's sports, they're kind of considered almost everything. Like you do get those, uh, those dollars from sponsorships, but if you're not filling your arena, you know, and selling those tickets, it's basically considered like you're screwing up. So I think that, you know, women's sports are going to start to command those kinds of deals. But I also think that it means that they're really going to be competing more with men's sports for those kinds of deals, especially like, if the global economic situation continues to be like kind of precarious for regular people, it's, it's going to be, there's going to be tension there. If women's sports get as big as everyone thinks they're going to get, then, you know, it's not going to be like a DEI project anymore to sponsor a women's league. It's going to be like, I'm looking at my bottom line and I'm discovering that I'm going to make a lot more money and get a lot more eyeballs on my logo if I sponsor this women's team, as opposed to say like an NHL team that's doing really badly, like say, let's say the New Jersey Devils are having a really bad season. You know, you might not be getting a lot of money out of sponsoring the Devils on the, you know, on the half wall that season, you might want to have your, uh, your women's team in New York, get that logo sponsorship instead. I think what you said raises an interesting question for me because to some extent, like obviously on the field, like the Red Sox are competing against the Yankees, but in terms of like business, they are competing within Boston for attendance and fan dollars with the Celtics and the Bruins, other sporting events in their city. And I think as women's sports grow, there is maybe a threat that like the men's sports leagues will view that as a threat in a way. I fully believe for many years that if women's sports are going to be successful, that men's sports are going to have to become less successful. And I I think that would be great. And I think that that would be fine. But obviously there are a lot of people who aren't going to feel that way, but go ahead. I'm I'm informed we're supposed to put the entire national budget into sports. That's, that's what we're supposed to spend every cent and dollar available in the American economy on. So Mm -hmm. this you know, it seems like we could just add some zeros to every league's budget and be done with it. 
I think it also brings up the subject of ownership. Uh, you mentioned in the first segment that like in European hockey, the men's and women's teams are generally like under the same roof. They have the same name, the same arena, same ownership group. And that's not always the case in American sport. The WNBA has historically been subsidized by the NBA, but those ownership groups don't entirely overlap. Uh, the NWSL and MLS, I don't think have a direct relationship, but in many markets, Portland and Orlando and Houston, the ownership groups are one and the same between the MLS team and the NWSL team. And in this PWHL, the NHL doesn't really have a hands-on role at all, do they? That's correct. And it's interesting because Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the NHL, said on multiple occasions like that he would not get involved in women's hockey unless there was only one league. And now is that moment when there's only one league and, you know, they're kind of saying like the the NHL has provided us with like support and advice and, you know, help help consult with us and stuff. But they're definitely not directly involved and I don't know if there's a plan for that. I don't know how much I would welcome that just because I think the NHL is kind of badly run as it is and really like, you know, kind of continues to succeed in spite of itself. And really based on the efforts, I think of a lot of individuals at team level, like individual franchise level who are really working hard to grow interest in the game locally and really, you know, get fans on board. I think, Hockey kind of has historically been a more local, you know, fan base than you see with like the NFL or or even the NBA, where, you know, those are national event games. Like they're on national television all the time and you see them on national television all the time. Whereas hockey and baseball, not so much. They're kind of more local. And I don't know why that is. That might be a topic for a completely different episode. But the NHL is not at this time involved in the new Women's Hockey League, even though they said that that's something they would do. I would note that uh, they gave absolutely like pittance to the previous leagues. Like I think at one point there was one year where they donated $50,000 to each league. $50,000. And it was like, wow. I think it was like a split because like when – uh, at one point, it was like, oh, they gave $100,000 to one of the leagues, and then there were two leagues, and they had to do the same amount split two ways. It's just very insulting, in my opinion. But I think at the team level, there might be more of an opportunity for them to get involved, just because, you know, you are playing in NHL markets at this point. So, And there's already been, like, some kind of cross-promotion going on. You spoke a bit earlier on how in men's sports the real money is in TV and sponsorships and less so in terms of game day revenue of people showing up at the stadiums but I think there is a degree to which the one influences the other because definitely like, when you have full stadiums when you have full arenas for women's sports it becomes a lot easier for those leagues to say we're a serious deal if you're just tuning in on TV, the difference between a full stadium and a you know, half-empty high school field is enormous, just in terms of the legitimacy it gives the proceedings and the sense that this is a well-run organization, this is something that matters. And increasingly, there's this sense that women's sports are the big place for new investment. And to some extent that's a recognition that men's sports only got to where they are because they were invested in, you know, the NHL didn't start fully formed in the 1930s. It took a long time to get where it is today. Yeah. I think that men's sports have always started. That just has to do with misogyny and sexism historically in our society. Like it, it was considered normal for men to play sports at a certain point. And since that was considered normal and it's in, and since it became kind of this like cultural moment where you have people like really interested in athletes, really interested in individual players, 
like interested in those stories. Like, you know, it's not to use like a very tired overused trope, but it is a sort of like American mythology at a certain point where you have like these historical figures. So when you have a history, you can build on and capitalize on that history. When your history has been, you know, consistently underreported, under underexposed, and when you have like leagues folding, like basically like clockwork every five to 10 years, you don't get that historical consistency. So as you create that historical consistency, you'll hopefully start to see, like we were talking about earlier, where it really just becomes this cultural moment. Everyone's aware of it. Everyone knows that it's there. Even if they're not a crazy diehard fan who watches every game, they might sit down and watch it sometimes, or they might hear about it as like a conversation at school or at work. And then, you know, that kind of casual interest, I think, is underrated as a driver of like what we do with sports in this country. Because it's really, and I talk about this all the time about how like popular sports culture is kind of a window into cultural norms and like what people think is important and what people's values are on kind of a national level. And I think as our culture, in at least in North America, has gotten so much more diverse and people have you know, been able to talk publicly about what their values are in a much different way in the last, say, 30 years. I'll just give that number at random, but it, and that's as long, about as long as I've been alive. I'm 33. Like, you're starting to see that men's sports can no longer just coast on the basis of that historical consistency, that they really do, they do have to work harder to maintain public good opinion to capture the public's imagination to continue to be that like you know american mythology that awesome moment that people remember from their childhoods right that's really what makes people interested in sports i think right i i think i've said this before on on the show but like i've been a baseball fan most of my life i've been a basketball fan most of my life i only became a loudmouth like i only started talking about sports because a lot of my coworkers seemed to treat me as a person you shouldn't leave your children alone with because I didn't talk about sports very openly. That was what finally convinced them that I'm normal. And this <laughs> includes the people at work who are not sports fans. Also, I'm not normal, but you know. N none of us are normal. That's okay. Exactly. I'm normal. I want to put that on the record. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. It's important Ryan that we normal. have at least one normal American on the podcast. Yeah. But having said that, it is there is like this mythological, as you say, the civic religious aspect to it, from the formality of you know the 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 flyovers at NFL games to sort of the the ritual of getting together. Like there are families that haven't gone to church on a Sunday in twenty years, but they get together to watch you know in this region the Bills play, which is also an experience of suffering most Sundays. I'm told, and. It's interesting because I think you're, you're absolutely correct that the increasing diversity of values that people can express means that weirdly the, uh, to use Florence Kennedy's term, the jococracy, I think that's how it's pronounced. Go with jockocracy. I'm trying to say that. It's not working. <laughs> <laughs> jockocracy. There we go. I'll, I'll separate the syllables explicitly, but to use her term is you can sort of take advantage of that and use it against the established sports leagues. Uh, you can push back on them and say, hey, we've got this great product that doesn't look anything. It has the same production values. It has the same TV deals. It has the same amount of money coming in. But on, instead of it being, you know, based on a generate uh, in, instead of it being based on the fact that you know your grandfather was a great grandfather was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan and so you stuck with that team it's like no this is something new we're creating we we're birthing this new world it's different we're investing in it and we're hoping that the vivacity of it is w the attractor and you know you don't have to hand it to capitalism but there is something really attractive in that yeah just the idea that like 
you know, we have this history that people remember that's very recent. And we can look back on that and like say that this is the beginning of like what our new history is going to be. Speaking, I guess, of new history, uh, something I wanted to touch on before we wrap up this episode, obviously a broad topic, but there is a bit of success story in the recent news in this regard in that the NWSL just signed what is its biggest ever uh, TV contract, the biggest ever for a women's professional sports league. It's something on the order of $60 million a year across ESPN, CBS, Amazon, and Scripps, which is a sign of success, I think. Because like Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, the NWSL was in very much the same situation that the PWHL is in now, right? It was coming on the heels of a league that folded, a league that couldn't survive, despite you know proven interest in the U.S. women's national team the professional game had struggled to find a foothold here. And here we are a dozen years later, the NWSL is growing. It had eight teams when it started. It has 12. Now there are multiple more on the way. Um, You're seeing huge crowds for the game in markets like Portland and LA and San Diego. I've seen like, crowds of like 25,000 for women's soccer matches, which is would have just been unheard of even, you know, 15 years ago. And so I think like the fact that they're getting this level of investment, $60 million, it's compared to like a million point five for their last TV deal is really remarkable. And, and with it comes like, a whole host of new opportunities for what the future of women's soccer and women's sports can look like. Yeah. I think um, initially, I think when that detail came out about the new contract, I don't think it was clear that those networks are actually going to be contributing to the production cost because previously the NWSL had to pay its own production costs. Um, And that was kind of, I think unclear until very, very recently that there will actually be paying into the production cost. And that's huge because that frees up the NWSL to do more with their money and also ensures that like, you know, you're getting these seasoned broadcast professionals, you know, involved in the production of the game. I think there's been like some kind of pushback about it because they are spread out over multiple networks, which is unfortunate, but you are really seeing that kind of balkanization of broadcasting more like MLB, I think is on like a bunch of different networks all the time now. (laughs) and yeah it's it's I I think that's kind of the new normal in sports broadcasting is that you're really going to start seeing it like in loads of different places as you know different broadcasting companies are trying out different things and trying to get involved in live sports because you know like we were just saying live sports is kind of one of the last things that brings everyone together at the same time around the same subject and everyone wants in on it because I think there's comfort in it. And it's it's going to be a reliable source of money for sports as long as we have sports. It's just going to look different than it did like, you know, 25 years ago when every game was on the same network all the time. And I think that's fine. I, I hope that broadcasting gets a little bit more stable in in the near future just because it's like you don't want to have to subscribe to like eight different services to be able to watch your stuff but it's still it's a massive win for for women's soccer and i'm very excited about it i i think just due to time constraints as much as anything we'll have to end this show on that (laughs) positive hopeful optimistic note for this week i'm ryan I'm Zoe. I was Noah. And this is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. 
Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. <laughs>